Hi everybody, JP here. Uh, there's very little I'm going to say about today's special episode because there's very little I can say that could accurately capture my excitement and enthusiasm for the episode we're bringing you today. This is a conversation between two giants in the field of spinal neurosurgery. One, Dr. Lou Toomey Allen, who's serving as a guest host for the podcast and who you all should know not only from his work, but as one of the earliest guests on this very podcast way back in episode four, where we talked with him in San Francisco about organization in the OR and controlling the controllables. And as a well-deserved nod to Dr. Toomey Allen, he's also the single author of an excellent textbook, Minimally Invasive Spine Surgery, a primer that I have read and reread and suggest to all junior residents trying to wrap their head around MIS approaches to the spine. It's a phenomenal work, and I always enjoy single author publications. Now, Dr. Toomey Allen is interviewing a gentleman who needs no introduction to listeners of this podcast, Dr. Volker Sontag, the godfather of spine surgery, a giant in the field of spinal neurosurgery, whose exploits will be described throughout the conversation, and which he details in his memoir, Backbone, the life and game-changing career of a spinal neurosurgeon. Dr. Sontag's contribution to spinal surgery, spinal neurosurgery, would take a day just to list out and detail, so I will not attempt to do so here. But I will remind our listeners that next April, ahead of the AANS meeting in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Thursday, April the 28th, and Friday the 29th, there will be the Sontag Symposium, a series of lectures on all aspects of spinal surgery from giants in the field like Dr. Sontag and Dr. Toomey Allen. So anyone who's going to be in Philadelphia for the meeting, we would strongly encourage you to attend, even if you only have the merest interest in spinal surgery. This is not a symposium to miss. So with that, for all the pleasure I get in conducting these interviews and speaking with these giants in the field of neurosurgery, this time, listeners, I'm going to sit back with you and enjoy this conversation between Drs. Lou Toomey Allen and Volker Sontag. This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Lou Toomey Allen, and welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. A big thank you to Mike Wang and J.P. Colson for asking me to serve as a guest host for this episode. For this podcast, I have the distinct pleasure of interviewing Dr. Volker Sontag, Professor Emeritus at the Barrow Neurological Institute here in Phoenix, Arizona. Now, to everyone in neurosurgery, Dr. Sontag is an individual who really needs no introduction. He is a titan in our field, having trained generation after generation of residents and fellows. But for anyone listening to this podcast, out of genuine curiosity in neurosurgery, Dr. Sontag is renowned in our field for the development of innovation, of instrumentation for stabilization of the spine, paving the way for neurosurgeons to be trained in spinal surgery. And finally, Dr. Sontag was one of the field generals that fought the battle against the spurious and meritless litigation in the 1980s against spinal instrumentation. Dr. Sontag, welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Well, thank you very much. I certainly appreciate having the opportunity to discuss uh, spine in general, spine in specific, the past, the present, and the future. And uh, Looking forward to it. Well, here we go. The first topic I would like to cover is the evolution of the spine surgeon. To our listeners out there, Dr. Sontag wrote a wonderful book. I have it right here, appropriately entitled Backbone. I just got Dr. Sontag to sign it for me. That book delves into so many topics about his career, post-war Germany, what it's like to come to the United States, what it's like to become a neurosurgeon, and then what it's like to be 
a neurosurgeon. The evolution of spine surgery figures prominently in that book, and I highly recommend that to anyone listening to this podcast. Dr. Sontag, you mentioned in that book that in 1988, when you began the fellowship at the BNI, there was no such thing as a spinal surgery specialist. In fact, I was actually surprised to read and back about all the pituitary and aneurysm, all the pituitary surgery and aneurysm clippings that, that you were doing uh, when you first arrived at Phoenix. You discussed that spine surgery was performed very differently. There were orthopedic spine surgeons who dealt with the vertebra, the neurosurgeons who dealt with the spinal cord and the nerves. The orthopods did the arthrodesis, the neurosurgeons did the decompression. Many procedures were collaborative. Can you take us back to 1988 and talk to us about how it came to be that neurosurgeons expanded into the realm of spine surgery and specifically instrumentation? As I've informed the group in 1983, uh, there were eight of us, and we wanted to be the uh, neurosurgeon's neurosurgeon. And uh, after maybe a couple of years of practicing and doing pineals and pituitary and maneurisms, we realized it's, it's better that uh, maybe each one of our eights do especially, so that if you have a problem, would you rather see the individual that clips eight basal aneurysm a year or want the individual that clips one of them? So, uh, and at that time, I was interested in spine primarily in the cervical cranial junction because of the multiple uh, cranial vertebral injuries that we had at the Neurological Institute and uh, nobody knew how to take care of them. In fact, what we did 90% of the time, put in, ha in halos. And it seems to me that, uh, and I became interested in spine because of that, and then uh, in 1988, I started uh, the first spine fellowship. Ian Kalfus was my first uh, fellow, and uh, it, the subspecialty uh, uh, evolved itself so that in about 1990 or so, I totally did spine and my other associate told me that vascular, it's functional, et cetera. So that was my personal uh, decision to go to the spine. And then, of course, uh, as you mentioned, our orthopedic college would do, do the uh, instrumentation after we would do the decompression. Well, uh, then it dawned on me, why should we not also do the instrumentation? And therefore, I started uh, doing instrumentation of the cervical spine and eyebrows were raised by my orthopedic colleagues. Uh, and once I started, uh, once I, I took an intensive course in uh, thoracic lumbar instrumentation, uh, and once I started doing thoracic lumbar instrumentation, it was uh, very uh, argumentative and uh, uh, painful uh, that I had this, I guess, battle, if you will, with my orthopedic colleagues because it became into a turf war. Uh, that lasted about uh, four years, but eventually, after extensive amount of back and forth and uh, medical executive meetings, et cetera, et cetera, I finally was granted full privileges to do instrumentation of the spine from the occiput to the sacrum. And that kind of made me a magnet attraction to excellent individuals out there who wanted to do the same, uh, the fellows and the residents that, that then became part of a, a training program that I was fortunate to train in spine and instrumentation of the spine. And those individuals now, as you mentioned, are all over the country, and if not the world, uh, Australia, Canada, uh, I had fellows, uh, so Germany, uh, Switzerland. So those all out there now are doing what, in the beginning, wasn't very uh, infant, especially 
In my training, I did very few spine cases. I was trained by Ben Stein. I was doing pineals and pituitaries and aneurysms. And, uh, and, but again, um, my interest uh, was stimulated early on by uh, nobody knew how to take care of odontoid fractures, at, uh, atlas fractures, uh, occipital cervical dislocations. And I went into that, pioneering into that era, and then the other uh, the other part of the spinal column and was a natural for me to do that as well. Uh, thoracic uh, instrumentation, thoracic lumbar instrumentation, lumbar sacral instrumentation, and continuing to do uh, complex cervical instrumentation, including a novel occipital cervical instrumentation, which now is routine, but in 1988, uh, nobody uh, knew how to do that. It also parallels with the, uh, the uh, evolution of the Im imaging. As we got better imaging, we can realize that occipital cervical dislocation is present. Before, just with pain X-ray, was very difficult to diagnose. Mm -hmm. But with CT, MRI scan, that we make the diagnosis and we can treat appropriately. So the combination of radiological evolution and um, uh, my interest in spine uh, kind of was very nice. Now, in the, um, in the book, and, and that battle that you talk about is well-detailed in Backbone, but there's a scene in, in Backbone, and I wanted to expound on that. There's a, there's a scene with an orthopedic surgeon that was operating alongside you because, you, as you said, these cases were collaborative. It was management of the cervical fracture, and in the book you just referred to him as Dr. S. Yes. So I, I assume that <laughs> to protect the, the guilt. So uh, your surgical strategy for that case was to use lateral mass plates, a technique very much in its infancy. Lateral mass fixation now because of uh, largely your efforts and efforts of others that it's, it's, it's commonplace. But in 1988, Dr. S was completely taken aback. Yes. Can you, can you describe that exchange? Yes. Uh, uh, orthopedic colleague, uh, the patient had uh, long bone fractures, but also C7, uh, C6-7 bilolac facet, which we couldn't reduce with close reduction. So I decided to take my surgery to reduce him and also to fixate him. And uh, my orthopedic colleague says if he could uh, scrub with me to take the bone. Uh, that was common those days, the orthopedic colleagues would take the bone and we would do the fusion of the neck. And I said, sure. Um, and, I mean, we, could, we also can take our own bone in those days, but uh, I said, sure, he was on the case. And so as we were ready to, um, uh, after we uh, reduced the bilateral facet, we're ready to put in the lateral mass plates, and I used a drill to put the hole in for the screw, and uh, Dr. S, who was taking the bone from the hip, looked up, and he <laughs> says, what, what are you doing? And he says, I'm, I'm going to put this blade in uh, with these screws. And he says, we've been wiring this for years, and that's why his head snapped up, because wiring obviously doesn't cause a pulling <laughs> <Right>. sound. <laughs> and uh, he said... And I showed him the plates and the screws and the anatomic landmarks that we're using. And he says, I'm out of here. Take me off the open roof. I've had nothing to do with this. And he walked out. Did you ever scrub with him again? No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let, let's fast forward to uh, from 1988 to 2021. We live in an era of emerging technologies, navigation, and robotics. Our friend Nick Theodore, thought leader in robotics, has an animation clip of a concept idea, which has got to be over a decade old, where a surgeon is peripherally performing robotic surgery on the spine and emblazoned on the back of the scrubs is the name Sontag. 
Uh, it's one of my favorite clips from Nick's presentations. Having been part of so many developments over the last several decades, you've got quite a panoramic perspective on new technology. What, what are your thoughts on these emergent technologies, robotics in particular, and, and what do you think the future holds for them? I think the future is very bright. Uh, way back, uh, maybe 2000, 2005, uh, I talked to Neil Crawford, who was a uh, bioengineering PhD, and, uh, uh, and as Nick as well, and we said, you know, we've got to develop a robot to put in these schools, do biopsy, uh, because we're starting to do minimal invasive surgery and coupled with the newer tech, uh, imaging techniques and navigation, minimal invasive surgery, I said, it wouldn't be ideal to have a robot to help us through the small incision paced medical schools. So Neil, Neil Crawford deserves a lot of credit. He worked on this and every month that we would have a biomechanical allowance, he would look at a newer version of the robot and I put my piece in, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so the, uh, the robots, I think, is, is going to be very, very vital in the future. The clip that you're referring to, I'm sitting actually in a room next to the operating room yeah. uh, and uh, putting in a, a pedicle screw through the robot. Uh, we are uh, using image guidance, obviously. Yeah, that, that, that clip I presented, uh, Nick obviously has it, and we, I present that clip a, a lot of places. Uh, for example, one time in Europe, and interesting enough, a lady neurosurgeon raised her hand and says, I'm studying that as well, but I'm wondering if we can use um, uh, satellites to place pedicle schools. I mean, the military, miles away, hundreds of miles away, 3,000 miles away, sits in a room and shoots off a, 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 a rocket that lands within a square a foot, 3,000 miles away. And why can't that technology? And she had the grant from her country to study that. And I don't know how much that, yeah. but, but that was the idea. So I, I encourage that, but I think uh, the robot has kind of replaced that. And I don't think we need to have satellites guiding us. I think we're coupling the new imaging techniques and robotic techniques and minimal basal spine techniques. That all is a bright, bright future and all for the benefit of the patient. So um, I'm going to ask you to look into the crystal ball and tell me, Spine surgery 2040, which is when I retire. What, what does, do we have fluoroscopy? What, what, what does the OR look like in 2040? Uh, well, if you compare what the OR looked like in, uh, say, uh, 1990 and 2000, and what it looks like now, it's totally different. I mean, now you walk into a space capsule, you know, with all the machinery, the uh, image guidance, the functional uh, uh, monitoring, uh, motor monitoring, sensing monitoring auditory monitoring, etc. And I think that will continue to evolve to the point that the surgeon uh, will rely a lot on uh, uh, the robots, rely a lot on newer imaging techniques, and then combine those techniques uh, to operate on, on the patient uh, in a manner that outpatient will probably be the primary way to operate because the minimal invasive surgery that, uh, requires less uh, muscle uh, attraction, skin attraction. So I think the future is that in 20 years from now, as you ask me, I think 90% of our complex surgery that we do now will be outpatient, will be based on image guidance, will be based on robotics, and, uh, and also uh, newer techniques such as uh, when you put in a screw, have that screw become the fusion, uh, that, that bone, that uh, 
The screw is made out of material that is also acts as a conduit uh, and bone growth. Not only that, but there's also some work done where uh, you can monitor the bone growth via that screw where they have little monitoring devices in the screw, and then you can, you can check it, the physician or the patient can check it in the office and see, oh yeah, there's bone growth going on. And that is, that's, I think, already pleasant here to some extent. Yeah. But things like that will continue to evolve. And I think if you look where we've been 20 years ago, uh, uh, 25 years ago, a routine lumbar disc would be hospital five days, a yeah. routine cervical disc two to three days. Yeah. The reason I was um, visited by many people around the world, because I did my uh, lumbar disc surgery as an outpatient if I do it early in the morning, my cervical disc surgery within 24 hours, uh, and then haven't come back to check what I call wound check. But the hospitalization, hospital is not a very good place to recover, as we all know. Hospitals for sick people. Hospitals for sick people. They're not sick. No, yeah. exactly. So on that topic, um, innovation. So you, you've been on the leading edge of innovation in spine for several decades. You're more familiar with projects that have successes and failures. Uh, I was chatting with a spine fellow at the spine uh, section meeting in August in San Diego. And he uh, had some frustration. He said, hey, you know what? There's really nothing left to innovate in the realm of spine. He said, everything pretty much has been explored. There's nothing left for us. And I was reminded of the quote from Charles H. Duell, and that's what I told him in 1899, who he was either quoted or misquoted uh, as saying, everything that needs to be, that, that can be invented has been invented, so let's shut down the pa- patent office. And Duell was the, the head of the patent office. So what, what are your thoughts? I mean, what do you tell the next generation of neurosurgeons? Is like, well, you know, look, the plates, the, there's nothing left for us. What, what do you tell them about innovation? Well, I think that's, I totally disagree with that phrase. I know that phrase very well. Uh, and, and obviously he was wrong, and obviously we think that really the end of innovation, the end of uh, new procedures, the end of new instrumentation, I think that's totally wrong. I think we're just in the beginning. I think we're going to have uh, uh, plates and screws and uh, material that, as I mentioned, is uh, biomechanical, uh, bio, made out of biogenics, uh, monitoring the, the growth. Uh, there's a lot of an intervention as far as uh, uh, coupling all the new technique uh, uh, and uh, also uh, coupling the monitoring devices instead of having needles put in the head and needles in the foot and the arms, uh, the instrument itself can monitor uh, the waves. So when you're operating on near the spinal cord, the instrument itself that you have near you or the, or the retractor, the retractor will have monitoring devices in it. And that's all, that's nothing that is now, but that's coming. Sure. I'm sure it's coming. And I, I would say to that young man that you met at the spine section, we're just the beginning. Yeah. If you look back 20 years and people say, what else can we do? We have a place, we have the schools. Well, look what we've done. I mean, right. it's yeah. totally changed. And when I was a resident, I, there was orthopartic Harrington rods and Luke rods. That was the only instrumentation done of the spine anywhere. And look how much we've come from Absolutely. that. Yeah. So uh, to think that that all of a sudden shuts down, is, I think is wrong, and uh, I, I don't think it will occur. I think the future is very bright for the young, uh, innovative mind. You to keep the open mind, right? To keep the open mind, yes. So I'd like to shift gears a little bit <clears throat> and uh, talk about a couple scenes in the book. There are a couple scenes uh, in one chapter in particular where we discuss complications. Yes. I'm going to read the final sentence of 
the chapter where you were reflecting on the outcome of two patients who had undergone surgery. One was a cerebellar tumor, and the other one was an AVM. The, the passage reads as, as follows. It starts, Later in my office, a painful regret welled up in me. I pulled out my wallet, removed the piece of paper on which I had written Michael's name months earlier. I unfolded it, I took a pen, and wrote Melissa's name under his. Even today, that paper lies creased and dog-eared in my wallet. Juxtaposing that, that statement there, which I thought was a very moving part of this book, uh, Rene LaRiche, a French vascular surgeon in the 1950s, and some would say philosopher, he, he, wrote, he wrote the following, every surgeon carries within themselves a small cemetery where from time to time they go to pray, a place of bitterness and regret where they must look for an explanation for their failure. Complications take a heavy toll on any surgeon. They've certainly taken a heavy toll on me. And I remember when I was at Emory um, and I, I spoke with, with the late Susie Tyndall uh, after she showed me a magnificent wood shop where she, she did a lot of uh, work, I, I would look at these magnificent pieces and ask her why she retired because her skill level was clearly so high, manual dexterity. And she told me of a complication that devastated her and that's why she, she walked away. Neurosurgery is a Spartan community. We have a warrior spirit, but even warriors need to organize in their mind their complications. LaRiche laid it out plainly. So did Susie Tyndall. She could not have been more blunt with me. Writing the names of Melissa and Michael and including them in your book speaks volumes. What can you tell our listeners, many of whom are neurosurgeons practicing and in training, how to, how to handle how to, what do we do with our complications? I, I think, uh, fortunately, we don't have many complications, but the ones we do have, they cheer on your heart like nothing possible. I still think of those two uh, people. One was a young man with a large cerebellopontine ankle tumor, and, uh, and while I was operating on the, the, the cerebellum kept swelling out, coming out, and I thought there was a bleed in bef before I opened up. Uh, nothing, just more swelling, more swelling. And uh, he was a young man, went to local high school here in Phoenix, Southern high, South High, and uh, he, he never woke up from surgery. That, that devastated me. That just, uh, I came in every day, weekends, every day, twice a day sometimes, to check on him, but no change, talk to his families, uh, which were many of them. Uh, that really took a big toll on me. And we, we meaning surgeons, neurosurgeons, take this very personal, very personal. The other lady was a, when I did AVMs, uh, things were going fine, but all of a sudden, bleeding burst open everywhere as I was clipping the feeding vessels. And that was explained later on in a publication by Robert Spessler, uh, Blood Brain Barrier Breakthrough, uh, and uh, but I didn't know then what it was, and uh, the bleeding just continued, continued, and uh, blood had to be given. And uh, I, 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 I was lucky enough to close the case, and that patient never woke up. And both of those people uh, stayed with me, and still do stay with me, as as you can tell. 
both of those were absolutely devastating in my career, and it took me a while to, I'm never open totally, but it took me a while to move on to the next phase of uh, my neurosurgical life. But yeah, complications are very tough on an individual, especially where we are directly involved and, to be quite frank, directly responsible. So what, what would you, when, when a young surgeon, I mean, it's, it's hard to get back on our feet again. Right. One of the things that my wife says when I walk in the door on a surgery day, she looks at me, she goes, how did the cases go? And I always say, everything went okay. Because it, affect, it affects our, our home life, affects our family, affects our, and that's the most difficult thing is how to prevent it from affecting um, how to, how to prevent it from affecting the way we interact with our family. Right. Are, we, are we less patient with homework help at, at, at a soccer practice because of something that happened? I, I have not been able to externalize. I've not been able to separate that. I, I, don't, think, I, I, I don't think one can. I certainly couldn't either. I mean, the, I think I was uh, less of a uh, nice guy, <laughs> if you will. Sleeping was almost impossible, or if you do fall asleep, you wake up five minutes later, uh, thinking about the case, rethinking about the case. Uh, it, it really uh, tears on, uh, pulls on your heartstrings when things like that happen. Uh, and then it takes you a while to get back in the saddle to do a case of a similar uh, problem. But uh, uh, fortunately, uh, you know, when one has a loving, supporting family and uh, supporting friends, you do get back on the saddle and, and move on and realize that uh, hopefully you won't make a similar mistake in the future or will avoid the future complications that Ethan uh, had. The, um, that's where our M&M conferences at times and then when we have our complication course, they almost feel like confession. It almost feels like we can right. discuss it and other people have had similar experiences and then there's the element of of how to organize in your mind the impact that you had on someone else's life. Right, and I, I agree with, with all of that. I, on the other hand, though, you know, it's still, even now, uh, I'm, I'm at a grocery store and someone will run up to me, you're Dr. Sontek, yes? You did my, saved my boy's life uh, last year, and he's doing great. Uh, that, this was just happened. Uh, and that happens frequently, so one has to think, on that side of the equation, as well as the side that we just discussed. Yeah, those are the things that, that buoy us up, us up. Right. Neurosurgery, life balance. When I first arrived in Phoenix, I don't know if you remember this, but um, I had an opportunity to sit down with you when I first got here to discuss career guidance. And I thought you were gonna give me all these pointers of kind of getting involved in organized neurosurgery, who to talk to, how to, how to, how to organize your, your, your day. And then you, you showed me a presentation that you're gonna give at a meeting and you give hundreds of these, so that I don't know if you remember that, but there was a slide in your presentation of a team picture of uh, your boys playing, uh, it was your, your son's team, and you were off to the side there as the coach um, so you were in the coach's slot, uh, and, and it was uh, your, your advice at that time, or you're putting that in the context of, of, of life balance. Now, when you think about a neurosurgeon, the last thing you think about is someone who has time to coach their kids in soccer. But you did. 
And then you encouraged me to do it. And that was the best advice I think I've ever received in my neurosurgical career because one of the reasons my voice is kind of hoarse right now is because I was coaching a bunch of nine-year-olds and 10-year-olds to a five to three victory earlier today. Can you talk to us about neurosurgery life balance? Can we achieve balance with our family and our careers? And, and what, so a lot of residents uh, are listening to this podcast. Uh, what, what advice do you give them? Well, I, I think that balance of life uh, keeps us uh, from coming home and kicking the cat, uh, uh, keeps us on an even scale. I, I enjoyed uh, coaching. I coached uh, 15 years of soccer, five years of Little League baseball, and I enjoyed every minute of it. Uh, uh, and I think it did help me balance life. And it's difficult to do as a neurosurgeon, um, but I think uh, I my my schedule was such that I eat breakfast, have one cup of coffee, and the days I operate, have two cups of coffee, days I don't. I never eat lunch. So I'm usually home at uh, 5.30 to 6.30 to have dinner with the family. And as far as coaching is concerned, I uh, coach uh, practices uh, Monday and Wednesdays and the games on Saturday. And in the fall, when the season is, as you well know, uh, I would not accept any speaking engagement and uh, would not, therefore I don't travel outside for the two to three months that I coach. But I think it's doable. I, I, uh, the, the days I, I coached um, on Monday and uh, Wednesdays, my secretary would um, cross it out at the schedule just like I was in surgery and I wasn't available unless I was on call. So those days I, I just blocked myself out. I'm not available for the next two hours. And uh, it was doable. I did it for as I say, 15 years in soccer, five years of Little League, and uh, never accredited. In fact, now my uh, children, two boys that I coached, their friends, when they see me, they still say, hey, coach, how's it going? <laughs> <laughs> and that's, I really enjoy that. Yeah, you'll never remember the case that you did during that time frame, but you'll never forget that game. No. Yeah, my, 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 my 10-year-old stuck his left foot out and had that goal today. Well, that's all the time we have. I feel like we just scratched the surface on several of these topics, but we can continue the conversation in Philadelphia at the Sontag Symposium. For our listeners out there, the symposium will be held prior to the main WNS meeting, April 28th to 29th. I hope everyone listening can join us. I am certainly looking forward to it. Dr. Sontag, it has been a pleasure discussing these topics with you. Thank you for joining us on the Neurosurgery Podcast. Thank you very much. On that symposium, the lecturers that are going to be there are basically world-renowned uh, spine surgeons, primarily neurosurgeons, but also other fields. And I would encourage, uh, I think, you and Jack Knightley and others, uh, Reg Asia involved in putting on that symposium. And I, like you, I encouraged uh, anybody that's interested in spine, simple spine, complex spine, to uh, urge them to attend. It's a all day on the 28th, which I believe is a Thursday. Fr- a Thursday. Thank you. Uh, and um, yes, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Maybe, maybe we can do it again. We got to do it again. I've okay. got, I still have a list of five more things I want to ask you, but we, Mike Wang's in charge, and he says 25 minutes, Lou. So, <laughs> all right. All right. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. 
This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.